begin today's sermon by reading from a piece on the, the web, uh, that font of knowledge that explains everything to us. This was one article that would be one of many that I could have picked from, but I just happened to pick this one. It's a, a conscious rethink, that's the site. Don't know who they are, but it looked kind of authoritative in a certain sort of way. Three primary reasons to get married. Number one, the symbolic show of love and trust. There's no doubt about it. The biggest reason why people get married is because it symbolizes a union that is built on love and trust. That's interesting, love and trust, when we understand what love and trust may be. A ceremony, whether religious or secular, might include declarations such as these. All that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. Nice-sounding words, no doubt about it. This is you saying to your partner, This is my very being, which is now yours too, and I trust you to take good care of it. What bigger demonstration of trust is there? The second reason to get married, religious beliefs and values. If religion plays an important part in the lives of you and your partner, it's understandable that you may wish to get married. This reason may often be downplayed as unimportant by those who are not religious, but if your beliefs are that the love of two people should be recognized in marriage, it is a very good reason indeed. Your faith is yours and no one else can diminish that. This is not to say that you could not be happy as lifelong cohabiting companions because if the foundations are solid, you probably could. But if your religious beliefs and values are such that marriage feels right to you, notice feels right to you, it's certainly the right choice. So I guess if it doesn't feel right to you, it may not be the right choice for you. Number three, a sense of finality. Of course, people get divorced, but divorce is not the aim of marriage. When people get married, it's in a firm belief that the bond between the two parties is permanent. And this sense of finality is a worthwhile reason to choose marriage over cohabitation. Then the website goes on to show six secondary reasons to get married. In other words, there are those the primary ones we just covered. These are secondary reasons. One is commitment. You may be wondering how this differs to the sense of finality listed above. After all, committing to someone is a way of saying that you see them in your future. But commitment is only a good reason to get married if it is something you are giving not if you believe it proves you are receiving commitment. So it's kind of one-sided that way, with the hope your partner feels the same way. Tradition. It's, not, not, it's no bad thing to feel that marriage is the right choice over long-term cohabitation if this is what you see as being the, quote, and the habit in quotes, right thing to do based on tradition. And then it talks about family tradition, not historical, but family specifically. In other words, not the, the world or whatever, but just the family tradition. Of course, you still need the foundation of love and trust, among other things. But if tradition for you means marriage and you find comfort in that tradition, you find comfort in it, then by all means, make it a part of your decision to make the plunge. I hope we can kind of read between the lines on some of these things. You know, some things are much more subtle than others. I was showing my wife a piece, uh, Prager University puts out something by Will Witt, and he was going through a book for five-year-olds on all about abortion. You might go out there and look at that. It's a pretty humorous way he addresses it. But it's amazing how some things ought to be pretty obvious. You know, like uh, the, the book says that uh, any gender can get pregnant or can, can have an abortion, I guess. 
which is uh, kind of interesting. It ought to be obvious to any thinking person that this is not rational, this is not right. But can you imagine if five-year-olds are taught this and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds where they're going to be a few years? Their minds are going to be scrambled. Tradition. The third one of the secondary reasons set a foundation for a family. By no means does a happy and stable family life depend on the parents being married, but it can help. Remember the points about finality and commitment above. If you and your partner have made the ultimate demonstration of togetherness, it may bring confidence into a decision to have a child. I always love that word partner, and I I remember when... um, who was the presidential candidate? I, I see him. I can't think of his name right now. Um, from from Kansas, that came out advertising this for you and your partner. Your partner will love it. The change of language. It isn't your mate. It isn't your spouse. It's just your partner. And people don't realize how those little words make a huge difference in how people think because now it's just your partner. That's used all the time. It doesn't mean that you have to be married. It doesn't have to be your husband, your wife, your spouse, just your, your partner. For some, that feeling of being right, quote, unquote, to bring a child into a married household will be important. Security in case of death. Now we get into some real serious things. Boy, if you're not married, there may be some legal ramifications to it. That's number four. Number five is health insurance. I guess that's kind of legal as well. And number six really gets into it, visitation rights and child support. So why get married? To sum things up, marriage should be about love and trust first and foremost. If your relationship doesn't have these things, don't get married. Stay together, cohabit as long as you want, but don't get married. But if you are trying to decide between marriage and cohabitation, simply go through each of the primary and secondary reasons above and make your decision. This is one of who knows how many articles that you can find on the Internet. It's sadly too typical of today's view of marriage. Today's marriages are often the last in a series of events. First comes sex, then comes moving in together, Sometimes a child or children follow. And finally, usually the woman wants her day in the sun, a wedding, where she is the main attraction. An elaborate and often expensive dress, bridesmaids with their matching gowns, a lot of flowery statements in the ceremony, a lot of toasts. Sometimes a venue in another country, destination weddings are becoming much more popular today. Uh, they're, they're not unrealistic. Uh, one of our neighbors, they have a relative that's getting married in Italy. And they want everybody to wear certain things. And so it sounds like, to me, I'd tell them to take a hike. But anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's not for me to say because not my family. Well, that's what I'd say if they wanted me to travel on my dime all the way to Italy or Hawaii or like some people I met on the bus when I was up in Toronto and they were flying down to, I don't know, Cuba or one of those islands down there uh, for a wedding. These are not unusual, destination weddings. It doesn't show a lot about going concerned to those who have to pay the bill for all these things, but nevertheless, that's the way it is. But the woman usually has her day in the sun. She's the main attraction. The husband is there uh, just uh, usually going through the motions, may enjoy it. I know I enjoyed my wedding. I have to admit I wasn't really excited about the ceremony. Uh, when I think back on it, I, I you know, I, the, the whole thing, I didn't, not the, the words, but I just wasn't all that interested in having all these people there while I'm getting married. But anyway, it was a wonderful time. We really enjoyed it. I did. I surprised myself. But the wives, I think, always do enjoy these things. And I better shut up with that lest I get myself into real trouble. (laughs) 
Now, when we read a story like this or a, a resource like this, something fundamental is missing. And what's missing is the author of marriage, or to put it in one word, God. Few today even consider what God has to say about marriage. And that's obvious just reading the article. The values that God gives are of little significance to most people. So the questions I have for you are very simple. What is missing in today's marriages? What is the origin of marriage? Or to put another way, why marriage? And this afternoon I'll answer these most important questions in the sermon titled, Why Marriage? Whenever a couple comes to me and asks me to marry them, I often ask the question, Why are you coming to me? Why not go down to the courthouse, get a justice of the peace, and get married? Why are you coming to me? Is it simply to have a, quote, church wedding because the venue might be a little bit nicer than the courthouse and we may throw God in the picture somehow? I think that most young people, most older people, when they come to a minister asking to be married, never think about, well, why am I coming to this person? Why am I coming to the church to be married? It's not a frivolous question. It might seem obvious, but it's not frivolous, and it needs an answer. Few stop to ask the question, why marriage, or why do I come to the church to be married? So it's no surprise that divorce is one consequence of today's marriages. I'd like to read from our marriage ceremony. I won't read all of it. It's a little bit longer than I want to take the time for today, but I'd like to read pretty extensively from it. I think the second paragraph begins, second or third paragraph, it says, marriage is not only a natural union, or we might say a physical union, but also a divine institution ordained of God. Now, those words are very powerful when you think about it. It's an institution that is ordained by God. It's not just something that Man came up with in the course of time and decided that, well, we're, you know, we're a bunch of dumb apes here and we're, you know, beating bones in a, in a cave and we ought to have some sort of a, a ceremony here. That's not the way it worked. And yet, in many respects, people do not realize where it comes from. They just somehow, it just arose during the course of time. It was established not by man, but by the eternal God at creation and derives its authority not from civil codes of man, but from the divine laws of God, immutable, unchangeable from creation. Those are pretty strong words, and I think that sometimes people think, oh, I don't know, I've got my, my you know, cousin here and my grandmother or my uh you know, other people in the family, and, well, I wonder how they're going to take these words. Well, you know, if you go to a Catholic wedding, you're going to have a Catholic wedding. If you go to a Muslim wedding, you're going to have a Muslim wedding. If you go to a Buddhist wedding, you'll have a Buddhist wedding. And if you go to a Living Church of God wedding, you're going to have a Living Church of God wedding. I think it's that simple, and you can apply the same thing to funerals. Sometimes people think, oh, boy, I don't know about all this. Well, I've been to a Buddhist funeral, and it's different, to say the least. And I've been to Catholic funerals, and they're different. We should never be apologetic for what we believe and what we teach. goes on to say, therefore, it is fitting that we should consider the laws of God governing this union. Yes, there are laws of God that govern the marriage relationship, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. When God had created the first man upon the earth, the eternal God said, and let's go ahead and just read it from the Bible. It quotes Genesis, the second chapter. So we'll turn over there. I can just read this to you, but... 
The fact that you have to turn pages may keep you awake here a little bit. You know how that works. It's uh, it's kind of dark here, and we want to stay awake here. So Genesis, the second chapter, and verse 18 says, And Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, that's a very truthful statement there. It's not good that man should be alone. So God made a woman for him. And the woman, of course, was able to be deceived, was, was deceived by the serpent. And we could draw from that lesson, don't listen to your wife. But we also have to read all the scriptures and remember when Abram uh, or, or Sarah, Sarah, I want to kick uh, Hagar out, and God said to Abram, listen to your wife. So there's a time to listen and there's time not to, but the time not to is if she's saying something that violates the law of God. Kind of like Job's wife who said, curse God and die. That was not good advice. But sometimes to listen to your wife can keep you out of a lot of trouble keep you from making a bad mistake. So it's all a matter of judgment, of getting advice, whether it be your wife or someone else. Take the advice, but weigh it against the law of God. Here in chapter 1 and verse 18, we find the very first, I'm sorry, verse 28, not 18. Uh, it says, Then God blessed them, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, etc., etc. So the very first command that God gave to mankind was, as Dr. Meredith would say, have lots of babies. God is the author of this thing we call sex. And yet the devil is out there trying to make God look evil because he puts restrictions on that relationship. When God puts restrictions on that relationship to protect us from all the things that can hurt us. And when you think about it, there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering by violating God's law on the subject. But God created man, male and female. He created us that way. So why should we ever think that God is against us or God is trying to keep us from something that is good? God is trying to protect us from things that are going to hurt us. Jesus said, and then we go over to Mark, the 10th chapter. This could be either Matthew or Mark. It's, it's given in the, the old King James Version. So it reads slightly different in the marriage ceremony as we have it. But here in Mark 10, I'll just read it from there, beginning in verse 6. It says, and this, these are the words of Jesus, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, that goes against what you are hearing today in the world. In fact, there are probably prades going on right now today trying to say that there are multiple genders. There's male, there's female, and then there's whatever. That's a lie. And it's not very hard to disprove. And I I make the point because I think that sometimes our young people who have come up through this educational system that we have today can get a little fuzzy on things like that. And think that, well, we're, you know, Weston and all those people, O'Neill and Mr. Ames and Mr. Smith. Well, not Mr. Smith. He's, He's up to date. But the rest of us are just old-fashioned. You know how, how that is. And it's not a matter of being old-fashioned. It's a matter of truth, of objective reality, of observation. God made us at the beginning male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then it says in verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's what God had in mind from the very beginning. 
Continuing in the ceremony, Jesus taught that except for the cause of sexual immorality, the word porneia there, that is violation of the covenant between a man and his wife entered into with God, there is to be no putting asunder. Thus it is revealed that it is God, not man, or the laws of man, who is the author of marriage, the one who joins together husband and wife as one flesh. God, by his authority, which transcends and supersedes all other authority, commands that those he unites and binds for life may not separate or marry another, except on scriptural grounds. And I may have time to go into that. I may not, but we'll see. If not, it'll be in another sermon because I plan on giving maybe a short series of sermons on the subject of marriage. I won't cover everything today. And any lesser codes of man granting such separation or marriage, remarriage, or are in defiance of the higher laws of Almighty God, the Creator. This covenant, therefore, is binding until broken by death. Then the ceremony quotes from Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5. And it begins in verse 21. It says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. There are times in the marriage relationship when we submit to the other in specific areas. If I'm putting dishes away, washing dishes or something to help my wife on occasion, which I try to do fairly regularly, especially as we get older, it's nice to help out in those ways, then I want to know where things are to be put. I kind of have a pretty good idea, but every once in a while there's an instrument that I don't know what to do with. So do I just put it wherever I want to, or do I submit to my wife and ask, where do you want me to put it? And she'll usually tell me. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. When I go to summer camp and sometimes help out in the kitchen, my wife was over the kitchen there up in Michigan for a number of years. Well, I I take orders from the ladies. You know, the Sabbath, the ministers go in, we try to help and serve and, and everything like that. And We don't just go in there and start doing everything the way that we want to do. We want to know what are we supposed to do. There's a time to submit to one another. But when it comes to the big decisions and things that are uh, of a of different nature, it says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the attitude of mind is that your husband is sitting in that position, in a superior position in terms of, of uh, responsibility and accountability. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, the church is made up of all the individuals that have God's Spirit, you know, those who are called, those who are chosen, those who are faithful to the end, and the bride of Christ is going to be the church. And so all of us, every single one of us that are in the kingdom of God, the family of God, are going to be fulfilling the position of a support system of the wife that collectively we will carry out Christ's direction. And there's nothing demeaning about that. I think that we we look forward to that. When we work for someone, we carry out the responsible or the, uh, the, the directions that the boss gives us. And we can enjoy that or we can resist it. Therefore, verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then it speaks to the husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. I think sometimes our, our wives think that, well, we have to admit all they have to do is love. Well, uh, there's, there's, a, there, there's something about our nature that, that a man wants respect. And that's what this is saying when we submit ourselves. We're, we're showing respect. Wives need tender loving care, and husbands need to understand what that love means, which is more than just 
jumping in bed together. It means a whole lot more than that. And it shows a responsibility here. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, Christ gave his life for us. And we ought to be willing to give our lives for our mates, especially for our wives and our children. And sometimes that is very literal. When the Titanic went down, that's kind of an interesting thought here. You mentioned the deck of the Titanic. I don't know why all these things suddenly come up, but there were men who gave their lives for the wives and the children. I'm not sure it would always happen that way in today's world. In fact, we've had situations where the captain has abandoned the ship before everybody got off. Some very famous or very significant situations where people have died. One was a ferry boat off of uh, between Vancouver Island and and uh, the mainland. Another one down in uh, in the Mediterranean. A very uh, prominent case there. But husbands should be willing to give their lives, but more so, do so on a daily basis. Give of ourselves on a daily basis. And, you know, that's what marriage and family forces us to do in many respects. I've given the example before when we came down the Alaskan Highway in 1951. My parents could have thrown me out there in the snow for the wolves. A little brat that's throwing up all the time in the car. You know, it have been the perfect crime going all the way to Texas. And, you know, the people in Alaska, well, he died here. And the people in Texas, well, he died up there. And, you know, it's been the perfect crime. But that's not the way we do things, is it? Marriage forces us to, to be concerned for the other person. I say forces us. It certainly encourages us. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't force us, but... We, we do care for that other person. Even sometimes people who get divorced still care for their, their mates. Not always, but many of them do. It says, He gave himself for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ is concerned for the church. We should be for our mates. I hope we pray for our mates that they'll be in the kingdom of God as well as we hope we will as well. But that we pray for our mates, that God will help them to grow, to have the highest position that they can possibly have, the highest reward, and that God will see them through all the way to the end. It says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And part of this is not in the uh, the ceremony, but we'll read it anyway. It says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason, a man shall leave father and mother, verse 31, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It is this physical relationship that we have that we call marriage is a type of Christ and the church. Do we really get it? That what we are doing here on this earth is a type of something that is far greater in a very few short years to come. Amazing thing. He says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We also find in the ceremony, 1 Peter, the third chapter, 1 Peter 3. And it quotes verse 1 and verses 6 and 7, so I'll go ahead and, and read that portion of it says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, 
And every once in a while we hear of someone, in fact, not long ago I heard of someone that, that mentioned that, that he saw the change in his wife. And that's what got him interested in the church. That doesn't always happen, but it does happen. There is that possibility. The reason that may not happen more often is because so often a wife who is in the church and the husband is not, she feels superior to her husband. I always tell them when wife says something about, well, I, I, you know, I was 10 years earlier than my husband. And I usually respond, well, God knew it would take more, more time for you than your husband in a case like that. And it goes the other way. It goes the other way. But sometimes wives, and I'm not saying everybody because some of you fit in this category in a positive way, but sometimes wives think of themselves as superior and because their husband is not in the church that they don't have to respect him or don't have to be obedient when it's not contradicting God's law in some way. Notice verse 5, it says, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. With understanding, I have to confess that I'm a little slow to learn sometimes. But it's true that, that wives like to talk about a situation. They're not looking for an answer. They just want to talk about it. We find that kind of humorous as men because we're fixers. We want to solve the problem. And our wives may not want to solve the problem. They may just, they just may want to talk about it. And God says that we are to dwell with them with understanding. There's a clue there for us men. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, when it says that the weaker vessel, it doesn't mean always in physical ways. When it comes to long-distance swimming in cold water, women have the advantage. It's true. Some of the feats that women have performed in, in swimming are just amazing. Now, it's partly because they have a small layer of fat, a subcutaneous layer, as it's called, which insulates them and keeps them warm. And that's what also makes them soft and, you know, uh, round and makes them everything that we, we want to see in, in our wives. We don't want to see them be bony and, you know, the way that some of us men are. We want to see them nice and round and so forth. But they have that advantage in some cases. It's just amazing some of the things that they have done. And sometimes wives are more intelligent than husbands and have better advice. But I've also noticed over the years when it says the weaker vessel, wives often have more ailments, more difficulties. I think it's partly because of the complexity of of a female, a body. They have a lot more going on there to be able to have babies and so forth. And it seems like oftentimes our wives just have more, more trials that way. And maybe that's because we as husbands need to learn compassion. But nevertheless, our wives do seem to have more trials. At least that's how it appears to me. That's not always in every case, but it, it is sadly too often. So that's our ceremony, at least a part of it. I haven't read the remainder of it where each give their, their vow before God to do certain things. We could read that or hear it. But I want to point out that some want to alter this ceremony because they find it too old-fashioned or not eloquent enough, not colorful enough. And so every once in a while we have someone who comes and wants to write their own vows. Well, their writing of the vows would not be the same as what we have. Or 
they want to add something to make it a little bit more colorful, a little bit more acceptable to people and and so forth. And so one of the ones that they want to add is over in the book of Ruth. Let's go back to the book of Ruth. And here we read in verse 16, Ruth said to her mother, Now these are wonderful and beautiful words. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The eternal do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, those are, are very beautiful words. I didn't read them very beautifully, but they're, they're very beautiful words, very melodic words, very meaningful words. But why don't we put that in the marriage ceremony? Well, it should be obvious that this is not the same thing. She was not committing in marriage. It says, your God will be my God. Is that what we promise in marriage that your God will be my God? What if that person changes? What if the husband decides he's going to be something else? Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to follow him in that? Your people shall be my people? Well, there's certainly uh, something to that. But when we look at it, it really is not talking about the same thing. It is a commitment of this Moabite woman to go back to Israel with uh, her mother, Naomi. And she saw something about the God of Israel, perhaps, that she uh, did like. Uh, at the very least, she saw something in her mother-in-law. And so she said, your God would be my God. But that's not what we, we say in our marriage ceremony for certain. Or we have people that want to add a theme, like scuba diving or skydiving, or having your vows jumping off a bridge with a bungee cord. Those probably are not ones that anybody in the church has tried to do. I, I don't think so, but I wouldn't put it past somebody. But I have seen, we have maybe, uh, oh, let's give an example of, of a barn theme where you sit on the back of a hay wagon wearing a straw hat and, and bib overalls and this sort of thing. That's more likely as a scenario. But people have different ideas of the way they want to do it. Or they want to add some custom, such as the lighting of a candle. We have two candles, and now we make them one. I don't know, but candles seem to be, have a, I mean, candles are nice, but they have a lot of religious significance in uh, pagan religions. And I think probably those things we've, we've tried to avoid. We have to ask the question, is sitting on the back of a hay wagon or diving uh, out of the sky with somebody trying to read the vows before you come crashing down. Uh, is this what marriage is about? We've had to look at that. In fact, we have new instructions to our ministry. Mr. McNair has been working on this. We might want to tweak a word or two, I think. I was going over it this morning and, and noticing there's a word or two we might want to change. But in general, this is the instruction we're going to give to our ministry. In recent years, the trend of society is to downplay the spiritual element of the marriage ceremony, a covenant between a man and a woman with God. Thus, some couples in the world go out of their way to find new and bizarre ways to have the ceremony skydiving, deep-sea diving in the back of a hay wagon. So he says, or writes here, this will be our instructions to our, our ministry, as you counsel a couple leading to marriage, guide them to see that marriage, the marriage ceremony should have a deep and profound spiritual element. The God of heaven is binding them together in holy matrimony. 
Trendy fads that detract from the purity and spiritual tone of the ceremony should be discouraged. Not only discouraged, but should be uh, avoided altogether. We just some things we just don't want to be a part of. Now the you know the uh, uh, reception afterward uh, that that's a little bit up to the couple. But even in the even in the uh, receptions, I found that. Too often we have music that's ungodly. We have bands that are way too loud. We have things that have been done that, that should not be done. Uh, sometimes the toasts that are given by the best man or the bridesmaid uh, are, are not appropriate. They can be embarrassing. They can get a laugh perhaps, but they are degrading. We need to be careful about those things and not take away from the sobriety of the occasion. It is a, it's, it's a sober occasion, it's a joyous occasion. But how we go about it uh, makes a, a big difference. Not only for us, but even others outside the church often notice things about the wedding ceremony. I, I know that there have been a number of times where our young people, because young people usually get married, at some point in time, so they have other friends, and they are out there dancing together and doing line dances together and doing all kinds of things, and people say, where do these young people learn these things? They, they, they notice how polite our young people are, how well-behaved, how well-dressed they are. Those things are noticed. That is a witness that we give at a time such as that, and people judge the church based on that. One of the things that destroys a marriage is the violation of God's law. So let's go over to Exodus, the 20th chapter, and let's look at the law of God, and let's just notice how much of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, applies to marriage and family. Certainly, the Fifth Commandment, applies to family, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, honoring your mother and father is not just for five-year-olds. In who we choose to marry, for example, can either honor or dishonor our parents. In today's world, people think that, well, I'll just do whatever I want to do. They don't take into account the people that brought them into this world, their mother and father. That's very important. So we honor our mother and father even in the choices that we make in marriage. It says, you shall not murder. But we know from the New Testament that the spirit of hatred is murder. So in marriage, when you look at some of the violent marriages that have existed, now I don't know all the details of it because I didn't listen to all the testimony and don't care to, but you have this Johnny Depp and Amber Heard where they displayed all their dirty laundry in front of the whole world, and but not a very good, good relationship there. And when you tear the other person down in public, that's the spirit of murder, spirit of hatred says, you shall not commit adultery. That's very directly related to the marriage relationship. And that is one of the chief reasons that marriages fail. Not the only reason by a long shot, but it is one of the chief reasons. And it's amazing how many times you hear that somebody divorced, well, my mate was running around on me. It's just amazing how often you hear that. I think of even my own neighborhood and talking to some of the people there and some of the things that have happened. You shall not steal. You know, stealing can be a lot of things. You can, you can take money. You can buy, you can take groceries or uh, trinkets or any number of things. But have you ever thought of stealing from someone's future mate? You see, when a fellow talks a girl into doing something that she should not do, or vice versa, but it's often the fellow, he's taking something from her, something very valuable from her. 
And he's also stealing from her future husband if she gets married. He's taking something private that should have only been his. But I don't think most people think of it that way. I want to read something here from an incident transpired when Muhammad Ali's daughters arrived at his home wearing clothes that were quite revealing. Here's a story as told by one of his daughters. It says, when we finally arrived, the chauffeur escorted my younger sister Layla and me to my father's suite. As usual, he was hiding behind the door waiting to scare us. We exchanged as many hugs and kisses as we could possibly give in one day. My father took a good look at us. Then he sat down on his lap and said something that I will never forget. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, Hannah, everything that God made valuable in the world is covered and hard to get to. Where do you find diamonds? Deep down in the ground, covered and protected. Where do you find pearls? Deep down at the bottom of the ocean, covered up and protected in a beautiful shell. Where do you find gold? Way down in the mine, covered over with layers and layers of rock. You've got to work hard to get to them. And he looked at me with serious eyes and he said, Your body is sacred. You're far more precious than diamonds and pearls, and you should be covered too. You know, that's good advice, because today there's far too many people, young fellows, who want girls to expose themselves on the Internet. And I understand guys doing the same. You know, this isn't a game. This is serious. And we wonder why there are so many divorces when we have people who have so little understanding of the sacredness of marriage, the sanctity of it. And what we do today makes a difference later on. I can't remember the exact quote. Somebody told me about it. But there is a quote that I, I really do like. And it goes something like this. The greater the number of your no big deals before you say I do, the shorter your list of special deals will be after you, will be after you say I do. It may not be exact quote, but I think it gets the point across. The things that you don't think of as important today, the things that you don't guard, the things that you don't protect, those diamonds and pearls and everything like that that Muhammad Ali was, was talking about. Of course, he was talking about something far greater than those. If it's no big deal today, it means it's not going to be special tomorrow. And young people, don't throw these things away. Don't cast aside that which is precious and that which is of great value. I like this quote from Dave Weinba. Weinba. have no idea who he is, but I like the quote. Never be too modest to be ashamed, nor too ashamed to be modest. We can look at the other commandments. Lust, of course, is, is a problem. But let's go over to 1 Timothy, the second chapter. 1 Timothy 2. Verses 8 and 9. You know, marriage is such a, a wonderful gift that God has given to us. And it's just so sad that, that mankind has not appreciated it. And that especially in our day and age, we're just casting aside uh, every, everything that is truly valuable about it. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, it says, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Men ought to be with their holy hands, separate, clean, without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, 
not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to, to braid your hair or to have uh, some of those things. Uh, uh, the point is that the real person should be the hidden person of the heart. I go back over to 1 Peter, the third chapter. There's something that's far more important than how we dress. That's important too, but it's, there's something that is uh, also important there. With the first Peter, second chapter, verse three, chapter three. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands. Then verse five, for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Or go back to verse three. Do not let your adorn Adornment be merely, that's a word that's added, but the sense is there, outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the uncorruptible spirit of beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So, it's simply saying that your behavior, the way that you adorn yourself in the way that you act, the way that you conduct yourself is far more important than the outward appearance. Now, there are many scriptures we go to the 16th chapter, the 16th chapter of Ezekiel, talking about how God ordained Israel, and it talks about fine things and good things. So uh, it, it all has to be put in its total perspective. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, In verse 12, it says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. talks about foods for the stomach and the stomach for food, but now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Remember who it was that gave you this body, whether you be male or female. And God gave the counterpart. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that to who you, that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. It goes right back to the beginning. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then it gives us advice in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There are a lot of prices to pay. And it all begins with violation of God's law, one way or the other. I'd like to read here uh, something from a book I've read a little bit before. It's called After the Ball by uh, Kirk and Madsen. It's written in 1989, or it came out then. It's written by two very, very uh, smart, high IQ homosexuals. Now, this is Pride Month. It used to be Pride Week. Now it's Pride Month. They have a whole month. And you can see on the news various things. But I think this is really quite interesting because where we are today started, well, it started long before, but it really took off about 1990, at the beginning of the 90s. And this book had a lot to do with it because it was a manifesto on how to sell the homosexual movement to America and, in effect, to the rest of the world. And when you see their plan, the first 300 pages, you see how they pulled this off using the media, you know, using distortion and lies, propaganda. Of course, they say we don't have to use propaganda, but then two or three pages later they show that they are using lies because it's to a good purpose. 
But the last hundred pages or so are, are so fascinating because they take themselves on and they point out that there are problems within the homosexual community. And this is an interesting quote here. They, they show that there are ten misbehaviors on the part of homosexuals. And one of them is misbehavior in relationships. It says relationships between gay men don't usually last very long. Yet most gay men are genuinely preoccupied with their need to find a lover. Part of this is due to the characteristics of male physiology and psychology, which makes the sexual and romantic pairing of man with man, get this, listen to this young people especially, inherently less stable than the pairing of man with woman. Their words, sorry if the truth hurts. So they admit it that two men getting married doesn't work as well as a man and a woman. Amazing. God seemed to know that at the beginning. That's why he said that man shall leave his, you know, and be cleaved to his wife. It should be two. Now, when it comes to morality in general, this is, this is quite amazing because they recognize that you cannot have happiness and decency without morality. Now, their explanation of morality is going to be different, and they have, at the very end, they have their, their new Ten Commandments, as it were. But here in this chapter that uh, is titled, or this section, it's titled The Rejection of Morality. That's one of their ten problems in the homosexual community, says the explicit root and branch rejection of morality by gays has been real, pervasive, and baleful in its effect on both the quality of life that we create for ourselves within the community and our public relation with straights. So they say that the quality of life is affected by their rejection of morality. The necessity of lying is, for many, the first crack in the wall. It forces upon them the realization that morality isn't a take-it-or-leave-it monolith, but has parts which are all more or less arbitrary. Now, we don't subscribe to all these things, but I just want you to understand what they're saying. If you needn't accept the part forbidding lying, because that's the first uh, cardinal sin that they give, that was chapter 1. This is chapter 2. Uh, if, if you needn't accept the part forbidding lying, then why should you necessarily accept the parts forbidding anything else? If accepting or rejecting the parts of morality is up to you, then accepting or rejecting the whole is up to you. And if such decisions are up to you, why pay attention to anyone else's morality at all? Even of those who don't throw in the moral towel altogether, many slip down the sleazy slope into situational ethics. And this often happens with, with young people. I went to a, a church camp, nine or ten, or I was in ninth or tenth grade. I think I was in tenth grade. A church camp. And every night, our counselor would get together with us, and he told us the story about this young couple going to college. And the bottom line was he was teaching situational ethics. How wonderful this person was because he gave his kidney to his girlfriend or vice versa. And he never said that it was, he brought up the question of whether they should sleep together or not. He never said what they did. But it was almost implied that, well, it was okay because they were such wonderful people. That goes back a long, long time, since I was in ninth or tenth grade. Situation ethics. That, that system in which actions are judged not against absolute moral standards, but in terms of the unique aspects of the particular situation in which the actor finds himself. Now, they're saying that situation ethics is not good. There has to be an absolute moral standard. Now, what they come up with an absolute moral standard may not be ours, but they at least recognize that fact. In short, many gays reject morality 
As ideologies go, amorality, or the lack of it, is convenient. They're a little more explicit about it. I'll leave that word out, but uh, it's, it's convenient. No one must judge anyone else's behavior. A sort of perversion of the junction, injunction to judge not lest you be judged. The exception to this rule, of course, was everyone's right to judge swiftly and harshly anyone else's appeal to any system of morality. In other words, it was okay, don't judge me, but they could judge someone who has a system of morality. That's what we see in our world today. We're inclusive, uh, non-judgmental, except for those who have morality. We were thought to be beyond all that archaic thinking. Everyone was to decide what was right for him, in effect, to make up the rules as he went along. Curiously enough, although gays talked as though this were a superior system, the rules they made up seemed remarkably self-serving. In fact, they boiled down to a single axiom. I can do whatever I want, and you can go to perdition. If it feels good, I'll do it. Nature, which abhors moral vacuums as much as any other, quickly filled this one with a toxic vapor of uninhibited pernicious impulses. Without morality, there can be no compelling basis for responsibility to others. Now, this what they've they've include they've concluded. Without morality, there can be no compelling basis for responsibility to others. There can really be no love. All these behaviors and many others equally endemic in the gay community resulted in part from the rejection of morality. It's really quite revealing what they're saying. In this section it says, I have everything I want, yet I feel that something is missing. Ironically, many gays who abandon the traditional religious religions find that the religious impulse itself isn't so easily ignored. What, after all, is the entire New Age phenomenon but urban humanity's response to the implosion of organized religions? Searching for something to fill the void left in their lives they occasionally sail off into the wild blue yonder. Summing it up, one participant said, quote, We all wanted something that we didn't have, and we desperately wanted it, but we didn't know what it was. End of quote. What gay men want without knowing it is to return to a sense of the sacred and a framework of ethics within which they can begin to trust and believe in one another. You know, that's what God has given us. He's given us the very thing that they're looking for and can't seem to find. They're looking for, as he says here, the sacred. The sense of the sacred and a framework of ethics within which they can begin to trust and believe in one another. One last quote. We judge actions by their effects and do they help people or hurt them? Let's follow, and this is what these two individuals are saying. Let's follow this reasoning. Rejecting morality leaves the apostate with no inarguable shoulds and shouldn'ts to constrain his behavior. And no guide to follow in controlling his own impulses but situational ethics. Situational ethics is undesirable because its adherents are tempted to rationalize their decision to do what they feel like doing anyway. This, it doesn't matter whether it's straights or gays. The problem is the same. What gays, like anyone else, feel like doing often includes lying, selfishness, self-indulgence, and self-destruction. Cruelty, insult and injury, and adultery. We don't like these things because they hurt others and make us look bad. So we look askance, in other words, Mads and Kirk, so we look askance at the rejection of morality. 
It's just as simple as that. In other words, they believe that we have to have morality. You know, do we, do we understand, here are people totally deceived, trying to promote something, a lifestyle, actually not a lifestyle, but a, a yes it is a lifestyle, that is radically different from the scriptures, and yet they see the problem within their own community, and it's not working. And they're analyzing why it's not working. And what they're saying is that what they need is what God gave to you and me. And it doesn't matter whether you're straight or whether you're gay. The problem's still going to be the same. You reject morality, and where do you go from there? It's truly remarkable. They're very intelligent individuals. God made man in his image. He made us male, and he made us female. His first command was to be fruitful and multiply. God created this wonderful thing of male and female and the sexual relationship between us. But this was in the context of marriage, always within the context of marriage. Few today understand the purpose of marriage, that God is building a family, Marriage is a type of Christ and the church. Marriage and family teach us the values of outgoing concern and care for others. Marriage teaches us self-sacrifice. In short, it teaches us to be like God the Father and Jesus Christ. It is a type of the kingdom of God.